LSD taught me how to see stuff. Uh, aside from psychic revelations and visiting with God and coming to grips with the idea of dying and all that other good stuff LSD can help you out with, it taught me visually how to look at stuff, how to analyze colors, how to see patterns, you know, in waves or tree branches or leaves or veins or erosion, all that kind of stuff. Um, it taught you how to look at it, really understand it, see, see nature. And we used to take it all the time, every weekend and hitchhike down to San Francisco and go see bands, you know, at the Grateful Dead and the Starship, or not Starship, that was the airplane then. Right. And all the San Francisco bands, we'd save our lunch money. It was only 350 to get in. Mm. So if you saved up, if you could scrape up five bucks a week, you could get a hit of acid and your thumb, get down to San Francisco and go to a show. Dyer's Creative Friends, the super awesome interview podcast YouTube show where I, your artist friend Chris Dyer, interviews all his super awesome creative friends. So, it's uh, late August 2021, uh, it's uh, coming the end of the summer, I just did five weeks of uh, touring around the states painting murals for a bunch of people including this uh, Ganja Farm in Northern California, where I'm at right now. I'm in the area of Ukiah, Mendocino County. And before I head back home to Canada and end my, my summer activities, I want to go and interview one of my friends who is out here. His name's Mark Henson. He's, uh, he's like one of the OGs of visionary art and psychedelic art. He's been around the scene for as long as I've even been aware of it. Uh, amazing painter, amazing human being, and I'm super excited to interview him today. I hope you enjoy. What's up, Mark? How are you doing, brother? I'm doing very well. Woo! Nice to have you here. Yeah, thanks, I haven't, haven't seen you in several years. Yeah, it's been like a couple years, right? Yeah, well, you've been out busy running around the world. And we've been like uh, locked in and, and all these things. I've been busy sitting at home. Oh, that sounds lovely to me. Where is home? Where are we right now? We are in lovely Blue Lakes, California, Blue Lakes. which isn't really an official place. We're out in the country uh, near to Ukiah and Lakeport, area called Clear Lake in California. It's beautiful, man. Like uh, I've been cruising a lot through Northern California these last few weeks, and in no place I saw big lakes like you got around here. This lake, Clear Lake, is the biggest natural lake in California. It's, it's not a reservoir, it's a natural lake. It's been here at least 10, 20, 30,000 years, maybe more. The Indians around here claim to have been here for 10,000 years. Wow. And they say the lake is a million years old, so. Right. Volcanoes right. around. We have geothermal stuff, it's pretty active. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to have a volcano close to home? Uh, they're pretty dormant. 
It, okay. They haven't erupted in 10 or 20,000 years, according to the Indians. It's been a while. Okay. Nice. So I'm not too worried. There's some hot springs, though, which attract a lot of people to the area. And there's a geothermal uh, energy installation that produces some of the power. Okay, nice. So, How long have you been out here? Moved here in 2000. Sweet. And what, what would you say was like the biggest advantage of living here as opposed to anywhere else in California? Well, I, before I lived 20 years in Santa Cruz County and... I liked it fine, but it got really crowded and traffic there was ridiculous and the price of housing got out of hand. I had a really good deal for a long time. I had big space and studio and workshop and stuff for very cheap. And then it got sold to be torn down for a parking lot. So we had to move and looking around at that time we were doing uh, 15 or 20 fairs or festivals for mm -hmm. income and most of them were north of San Francisco. Okay. So we were in the habit of getting our stuff together early Friday, driving to San Francisco, get across the Golden Gate before three in the afternoon or you were totally screwed in a traffic jam for the next three hours. So we ended up deciding that let's move north of San Francisco. We'll save a, a week's worth of drive time um, just on our festival scene. Okay, the Golden Gate's the only way to get to the north. You can go around the Oakland side, but either so, you still got traffic. Mm. There's okay. Gotcha. No matter what, you know, especially on a Friday afternoon, Santa Cruz to Marin. Uh, if you have a festival up the 101 or something, it was it was ridiculous. Damn! And you also have like a home in Costa Rica, right? I did. We had we had a house there for 20 years, 25 years, which was a really wonderful adventure but it got to be too much labor and work for me as I got older and creakier. Um, my body just isn't up to what was involved to sustain that place. Yeah, that way you'll still keep on going to Costa Rica and other people's places? Oh yeah, yeah, I have really, have really good friends there and I, liked, I, liked, I still like to travel. Mm -hmm. I have a standing offer to go live in Uruguay anytime I wish somebody will actually cut me loose a few hectares oh, nice. off their ranch and deed it to me if I want to go live there. What's the trade-off? What do they want they, from you, Mark? They like me. <laughs> they, they, they want my cool energy around and all my, all my ingenious thoughts and stuff. Uh, they want to see you painting. Well, there's that too. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> you like. So you stay I, here, but you got to make everything artful. Well, being here's being here is okay, but my wife kind of, because of the fire incidences that are getting more frequent every year, she's like, she's like, I'm done with this place. Let's get out of here. And I'm, it's scary. I could get, anything could burn at any point. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Now Uruguay is a big move though. And right now you can't go there because of the various COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. my, my friend that has his farm down there has been out. He's been away for a year, stuck up here. He's, oh, wow. he's in Florida right now, just waiting to go home. Mm -hmm. And they, they keep telling him, next month you can get it, we'll let you in. Next really? They we'll won't even let him go back to his country? Or is it because he's a foreigner? He's a, he's a, he has resident status, but, but, and, and because he's a landowner and business owner, they want to let him in, but there's always another little rule and another little thing. And right. Huh. Kind of like if you're an Afghani refugee trying to come to the U.S. <laughs> oh, damn. You gotta, it's that bad. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not nearly as bad. Oh, damn. <laughs> Well, he'll get it. He'll get in in the next month or two, right? And get back on his farm. 
Cool. Well, I hope that you find what your ideal home will be. Um, well, somewhere not too far from the ocean mm. with a view would be nice. Somewhere not too hot all year round, but some, I don't like being cold either. Mm. So, right. and with global warming and everything changing, it's like hard to predict. Where do you go? Right. What will oh, get Oh, I could move to Canada too. and they're like burning up too. Right. And or or well, you know, Italy's cheap. You can get nice houses there for a dollar. No. Live in a village. Yeah, you can oh, because wow. some places the young people have all left. Oh, okay. There's all kinds of good deals in Spain too and Portugal. <clears throat> you know, we go shopping for fun on real foreign real estate offices. Mm -hmm. It's quite quite entertaining. Yeah, you know, it's quite a dream, huh? if you want to live in Scotland, you have a million bucks, you can buy a castle. The, the real thing, you know, and. All right, goals right there. Yeah. But you know what, man? I love your house. Every time I come here, I'm like, whoa, he's got his own little hut. That's his studio. You got a lovely home with a back porch right next to a mountain with ganja plants growing all around you and a big garage to do all your, you know, Yeah, we, we love this place. It's just the fear of fires. The fires. Because it's, it's, we've had three fires here since 95. And I didn't live here then in 95, but there's evidence. And then, I don't know, what seven, were we seven recently eight years where ago? you were like, oh my God, I hope my house doesn't burn. Was it like Brazil that you're like, oh. Could be, uh, yeah. Because we were there in the summertime. Yeah, totally. Damn, man. Well, and it's, it's been close. I mean, the fire you can see right there, that, the hill right behind you. Mm -hmm. Imagine that whole hill burned. That burnt? Yeah. Whoa. But, but it's. The fire came most of the way down the hill, and then a fire crew came, and they show up with torches and hose, and they go, they dig a little trench and everything uphill from the trench, they light on fire. And it goes up and meets the other fire halfway, and there's nothing to burn in between them, it goes out. Whoa, it, it I know, stops that's it a strategy. That's what they call backfiring. You're using fire to kill fire there. Yes. <laughs> and so last time I thought that was a saying you can't use fire to no no fire. You, it's very common and the, uh, the firefighters use it everywhere oh. if you can safely start a fire that burns towards the fire coming at you um, oh, it's a very good technique it burns up more stuff but it gets it stopped too amazing well I learned and something so, new today so here the last time fire came here which was three years ago um, I had my house all soaked with sprinklers. I put in water up the hill of solar-powered gravity-feed water systems. So if a fire does come, I have something at least to try to deal with it with. Mm -hmm. And so I put sprinklers all around and on the roofs and stuff and got everything wet. So by the time the fire crew did show up, they easily could see that they could backfire all around my house. And that's mm -hmm. what they did. Five guys. Two guys, you, two guys with torches and three guys with hose saved my house. Nice. Then the guys with the water showed up. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that something backfiring is something good in this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, That's a bad joke. It's, it's a very useful technique. Um, no, we learn a lot about firefighting around here. It's, it's, you know, we really love our firefighters. They're the, they're the local heroes. Okay. Save everybody's home. That's beautiful, man. God so, bless them. Respect, respect to the firefighters. So, Mark, we've known each other for at least more than 10 years. Do you remember, and I had to like really crank my brain earlier today, do you remember where we first met? No. <laughs> Not exactly. Well, no. I, I had to be like, where was it? Was it like Alchemized 
2010 when they put us all together. It's like, no, I feel like I knew him before that. And it's like, oh, you got that picture that you took with him in Harmony Festival 2006 yeah. when the visionary scene was just popping out and you and Carrie Thompson were there. And I was like, oh my God, like, can I get my picture with you? So that's my first picture with you. But then I'm like, but you, I actually even found the art a year before that, Rigor by the River, I think it was 2005, you had a booth with all your art. And I was like, holy shit, this well, art's did, crazy. Did you ever show one of the Tribe 13 Gallery of the Senses shows in Seattle? I did, but I didn't show up in person till like that, 2008. That, that's probably where I first saw some of your work. Okay, nice. Which maybe was where you got the the row of skaters sitting in a row and they're all the different yeah. all the different cosmic there's right. six or seven different like bodies yeah, yeah from yeah. solid to ethereal sitting in a row there yeah that was you know i was fully on the skateboard yeah 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 you're what i think i saw then was boards mm -hmm. sick boards. so but i knew you so i guess we we kind of met like you sold me some postcards in 2005 at regular the river and then i found out on you at harmony the, the year after and then eventually we met, like, you know, through interdimensional Tribe 14 shows and Alchemize and Moksha yeah, events yeah. in Miami. Yeah, our paths crossed a lot of times. Right. And I think we were in the same uh, uh, hotel in Miami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were in the, the dumpster hotel. Uh, I know. That was <laughs> so ghetto, like Little Haiti. Oh, man, that place was the worst. Uh, but, but, <laughs> well, I, I didn't actually sleep there at all. Like, I, I had some friends in Wynwood who had a big fancy shikishiki hotel. They were doing more street art things, and I was staying with them and, and painting in, in Wynwood. That was 2011. Yeah, I think I slept in that hotel, but we weren't there very much. But, but it was close to where Ray's place was. Right. So we would just get up in the morning and go there, mm -hmm. have breakfast with everybody, and, and start doing what we had to do for the day, right. get ready for Moksha. You, you made it to a bunch of those events, right? Yeah, probably six or seven. Wow. Um, I went to the, the, yeah, I missed a couple, mm -hmm. but they were so much fun. How could I say no? Yeah, totally. And meeting everybody in Florida was a really cool crew there. Very international, lots of different languages and types of people were hanging out. Mm -hmm. So just for being around a variety of cool people, it was really fun. And all of Ray's crew and friends, they were so nice to me. Right. How totally. could I say no? Yeah, it was so nice. And then the last one I saw you out there was 2018 when we both gave speeches at my solo art show. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're always so supportive. And then uh, one time I remember that we hanged out solid was when I had my solo show here in Ukiah, also 2011. Right. And you were so nice, yeah, like right. teaching me how to stretch canvases. I had no clue. And I actually still don't do good at that. <laughs> but, but you were like kind enough, like, this is how you stretch a canvas, Chris. Well, and, you know, I want to help a, help a bro get ready for their show. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for, for show. You know, it's <laughs> part of the effort. And, and Jen, you know, oh, gosh, we have a visionary gallery in Ukiah. Uh -huh. What do I got to do to make this continue? Because the story of my life is some Somebody gets a gallery going somewhere cool and it's gonna take off and we start lining up shows now yeah I get a one-man show in six months and then five months later they're closed well, that's like every gallery pretty yeah much. <laughs> oh, oh, oh I know unless if they're the big shiki shiki ones but 
Yeah. They don't let many hippies in. in the, they they ask us for the, the back door or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jen started her little gallery in Ukiah. How could I not like want to be a hundred percent there, ready to help her for whatever she needs to make stuff happen there? Uh -huh. how, how how many years did it run out here? It's a couple years maybe. Yeah, it was a good. How long did gallery run? Two years. Two to six years, I can't remember. I cannot remember yeah. how long it was, but it was a good chunk of time. Well, I, I was so stoked doing my solo show there, you know, as a Eastern Canadian to do a solo show in California. It might have been my first solo show out here, and you had Jonathan Singer doing the visuals. Now he's, you know, yeah, doing yeah, he's, yeah, he's worked for the dead, yeah. Right. So. He went to the top. Yeah, but first he worked with Chris Dyer and Trevor Teen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a stepping stone. Yeah, Jen always had, Jen always had, <laughs> Jen always had good DJs. Ones yeah. that ones that were, if they weren't already famous, got there. Uh huh. You know, and I can't remember who the DJs were, but I remember being like, oh, cool. She had, she had Starfire a few times and mm -hmm. random. Yeah. Right, Christopherai was one of them. But yeah, she, uh, always, she always managed to find good talent to keep us entertained. But the bad thing about that gallery is you plug in the DJ, the art lights would blow and that, or the fuse box would blow and it was around the corner in a locked room that you couldn't get at and the guy was a real dick about it. So you'd, have, you'd blow every, all the lights and everybody, you'd have to call the guy up and he'd be in Willits. You know, 30 minutes away. Oh, no. And yeah, I guess I'll come down and fix it maybe. Oh, yeah. For lack of a $1,000 electrical job, that gallery suffered. Because he didn't want to upgrade the electrical panel. Oh, that's the landlord. Yeah. Oh, what a bummer. And he was renting the place. Oddfellows Hall owned the place. But he had the lease. So, and he, he didn't want to do anything for anybody. It was a nice spot, though. It was like two big rooms. Yeah. The light was on point. Jane was doing it as professional as possible. Yeah, the, the, <coughs> the rent was pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. So it. it it could have worked, but trying to do events that required any electricity was, <laughs> that was a big bottleneck there. Right. Well, I'm happy my show didn't have the lights blow out in the middle of it and <laughs> we survived. Uh, then another uh, fun event we did together was Brazil 2018. Yeah. We went to Sao Paulo, or it wasn't Sao Paulo, so it was a little bit outside the Sao Paulo. The town of Campinas, Campinas. which is a, it's a, a suburb of Sao Paulo, Right. essentially. It's yeah. an hour out of town, but basically it's a satellite city to Sao Paulo. We were giving speeches uh, and live painting a little bit. I painted a, 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 a BMW van and you then got down and spray painted a little bit too. That was fun. Yeah, the, you were painting the, the Oka skate bar. This right. Was a, this was a hamburger stand built into a Volkswagen bus that had the flip top lid, uh -huh. old style flip top lid. It was the coolest. That a couple of kids had built that they'd take around to raves and stuff. Yeah. But it needed an upgrade and you were there. It needed a sweet Chris Dyer <laughs> mural on it. A so yeah, you graciously let me uh, spray a few. Oh, what an honor. <laughs> a few man. little sections of it. And got the legend market. <laughs> Henson well, like just throwing cool taglines on your mural. Well, I'm gonna have to practice a little bit with those cans. Yeah, totally. Uh, by the way, I, I, I brought some cans left over from my job. Uh, science got them. If you can spare some for you, you can try it out. Um, we'll do it after the interview. So 
let's get a little bit into like your history. Uh, I've listened to your speeches about the history of psychedelic art that then fuses into visionary art and then you know it's a very interesting speech and you could talk for hours about the whole movement and stuff but I'd like to hear you know your roots where you from how you got into the movement and you know where did you start out and how do you get into whatever movement you call what you're doing well I, I grew up in Sacramento ca okay. the capital city of California oh it's the capital right? and you know I was a suburbia kid you know, it wasn't it wasn't really urban. There's not not much in the way of minorities living around there. <laughs> a few, you know, there are a few Mexican kids and a few Filipinos and some Chinese folks, and a couple of black kids at my school. But that was about it. That was like, and I always liked art. You know, I, ever since I was really little, I always liked making art and making stuff. <laughs> but in junior high, I got lucky. I had a teacher who was really inspirational and kind of inspired me to do stuff and show me how to do stuff. And in one of the classes there, I met this other character, Robert. <laughs> and Robert was a rich kid, or a sort of rich kid anyway. And his parents had like bottom oil painting lessons and violin lessons and all this cool stuff he knew how to do really well. I mean, he, this kid was already an artist. Mm -hmm. And he recruited me. We, the, the, the drama club in the junior high was going to do Shakespeare's Macbeth. You know, a play with witches and a war and stuff. Battle scenes, outdoor castle scenes. So they needed scenery for their play. So they recruited this guy, Robert, because he was the best artist in the school. And he needed some help, so he recruited me to help him paint. How old were you? Uh, it's like 13 or so. Okay. So we had these, you know, a 60 foot long set, 14 feet high, these flats we had to paint to look like a castle. And we had two sets, an outdoor scene and inside the castle. So we had to paint this stuff and it was huge. I mean, this is a big job. But we got there. But, you know, luckily, part of the fun of this was I got sprung from all the classes I hated. Mm -hmm. The teacher would sign a note and I'd be out of the class I didn't want to be in so I could go paint. And we, we worked all, we worked, you know, a good long time on this, a couple of months probably, and before the performance and everything. So I got the idea of painting big, you know, making a big mess and painting on big stuff was exciting. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to high school, I was really lucky there too because our the school district in Sacramento was brand new out out there in brand new suburbia and they needed art teachers and they had lots of, they had lo they had lots of money they were well funded so they hired a bunch of guys out of, who were art students from just graduating from colleges in San Francisco on their GI bill from the Korean war so all these young guys that wanted to be painters got jobs as art teachers while they were pursuing their career as painters trying to get their paintings shown in New York City and San Francisco and stuff huh. and they were successful Nice. so we actually had professional artists in four of the high schools around us and they were all buddies so huh. these guys all knew each other and would invite each other to come and talk in the classrooms and stuff so huh. I got to be around real professional artists right. and my particular teacher Ken Waterstreet he would bring his own projects to class 
and set up an easel off to the side. And while we were busy with stuff, he would paint something for a show in New York or San Francisco. That must so, be so, we, so we got to actually see a real professional artist doing his thing right then and there. Mm -hmm. And he would talk to us and tell us stuff while he was working. And he showed us how to stretch canvases, how to make a giant canvas, how to make shaped canvases where you get a plywood or masonite and cut it out to a shape and glue the canvas on. He showed us how to do all that kind of stuff. Mm. Practical, technical stuff. Beautiful. But when it came to what to paint, he was basically, well, do whatever you want. Ah, we'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it later and we'll, we'll learn as we go. And so he could like paint anything and he had a room full of supplies and big roll of canvas and whatever you needed was there. Nice. So, so that's how you started doing art and... Uh... Well, I had, I, had, I had good examples. And they had, they had another thing that I learned back in, when I was really young. I don't, I've been doing this a long time. When I was like You're 10, so when I was like 10, <laughs> they had summer recreation classes where they had art classes. And you could ride my bike to one of the local schools and spend the whole afternoon making a mosaic with they'd get tiles from tile jobs at the tile stores they'd get give them all the extra stuff so you glue tiles to a piece of plywood and make a mosaic or do some ceramics they had a kiln and you, you could make stuff all summer long and then at the end of the summer the kiwanis club had a little outdoor art show at one of the local shopping mall places outdoor sh shopping mall that was actually a real nice one and 200 artists would come and set up booths. And they had a whole section for all the kids, at the school kids that had their summer recreation classes. We each had a little booth where we could sell like popsicle stick art, toothpick sculptures, little ceramic wow. things we made. Just That's how you learned so young. Whatever we made, we could set up in this little booth and try to sell it. As a mini entrepreneurs. Yeah, so being, being you know, in an arts and craft show and trying to sell stuff and meeting people kind of like I've been doing it a long time that's where I first learned to do this stuff what a difference from like uh, art class today where that's getting cut left and right huh well yeah it was the golden it was it, I mean we had we had a room full of paint and brushes and paper and everything you needed there was lots of it so all you had to do is go in there and pick some, some supplies out and go sit down somewhere Play. and start working so high school, I kind of duplicated my junior high experience. The drama teacher that was the one from junior high transferred to that high school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't ever take any classes from him, but he got me out of all kinds of classes so that I could work in his drama class, mm. making sets for the drama, for the plays and stuff. So I did, oh, I did a lot of that and painted in the, in the art room. And, and, and I could cut out like half, like lunch, if I go to art before lunch, I could again. <laughs> spend my whole lunch hour sitting in the art room painting. It was okay. The teacher would let us hang out. After school, we could hang out for a while if we wanted, if he was hanging out. So I had lots of time to paint and, and get used to the materials and stuff, but still I didn't know anything. <laughs> I mean, I was still just a beginner, but I, had to, I got a good attitude for work. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> after I got done with high school, um, went to college at UC Davis where I took art and even then I still I was so naive I didn't know the difference between a BA and a BFA mm -hmm. I still don't know the difference other than a B Bachelor of Fine Arts or a Bachelor of Arts okay what's the difference so 
Okay, you don't know. I, I don't know. I wasn't nobody. But why no, is it important to you? Know no that? counselor ever explained it to me. I never had anybody. I never really. I could have used a little advice when I was in college, yeah. maybe because a BFA has more respect in the academic world. Okay. And maybe it's more studio time. I don't know. But do you find people care about those diplomas? Um, and, it's yeah. sitting in a box somewhere. I've never showed it to anybody. Okay, so been, you actually got it. I've it never used it to get a job. I never got any paper that's respectable. Yeah, I, but I never used it to get any job. But I was glad I did it to, yeah. to, to go through the process and get certified that kind of proved to me that I could like stick to something. Mm -hmm. Even though I was really bored with college and I managed to get out in, le in three years instead did, of four. Did it leave you a big debt like it does today? Absolutely not. Wow, different. Uh, you, uh, whoever the audience is here, they're going to hate when they hear this. But college fees for a state resident then in the UC system were $600 a year. $600 a year yes. for university? Yes, was the wow. tuition. If you were a state resident, if you were out of state, it was like 3000 or something. It was quite a bit more. But if you stayed here six months, you'd get residency and you could, you could qualify. So a lot of kids would do that, move here for a while, get a job, save up some money, and then enter the university. Beautiful. And the $600 got paid for because I did good on a test mm. for scholarships. So that, the state picked up that. So all I really had to do was figure out how to keep a roof over my head and fed and clothed and 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 acquire art supplies and my books and stuff if I could do that on my own I could go to college and my folks sprang for an apartment for me for my first year mm. but after that I, I you know I was scratching up enough money that I didn't need their help so what do you mean scratching enough money it was the 60s, man. I don't know if I should go <laughs> into the details. You can't talk about those things on camera. <laughs> the cops will show up after seeing this on YouTube. It's like, what have you been doing in the 60s, Mark? Well, I, How do you pay for college? Tell us now. I, I, did, I did happen to know where certain things could be acquired that other people wanted that where they didn't know where to get them. Oh, you were a tradesman. Yeah, oh, yeah. I did, a little, I did a little exchange. Everybody needs one of those facilitators. Which, which helped out, but you didn't really need a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And my first year, I did a bunch of drawings. And I, they had a local print shop there that, you know, graphic arts, little, little print shop in town. So I went in there and like, how much to print me like some posters, say 200 each of these drawings. The guy's like, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 bucks. So for what then was really cheap, I got these posters made of, of like six of my drawings. Mm -hmm. And I figured, well, I can sell these around all the kids in school right. for like five bucks or so and I'll make a little money. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that and it kind of worked. But college wasn't really the best place to sell them. There were little arts and crafts fairs, kind of like what I'd done when I was 10. There were bigger and better ones that were going on in Sacramento and other places where I could take my posters and you know drag a piece of plywood out somewhere, lean it against a wall and stick up my posters and come home with a hundred dollars or so, which then was good money. Right. You know, that was, that was like a week's pay. What, what so, is this, like the 60s or 70s? This is in... This is, would be 71, 70. Uh-huh. High school, I graduated from high school in 1970. Okay, nice. So my college years were 71 through 73. And these drawings you were selling were like psychedelic art or what was yeah. it? Yeah. Some yeah. trippy stuff for the, yeah, for the kids yeah. in the um, school. If you are going to show illustration when you do the interview here, 
Yeah, if yeah. You go, if, you go to my, if you go to my website, there's a drawing section. You can just lift a few there. Somebody wrote me a couple years ago, hey, somebody died and it left me some stuff and one of them is this drawing that I think is by you. Mm. And it's from like 68. Oh, nice. They, they, where I, I had some art show where I sold some stuff when I was like 18. So it's an original you got back? Yeah, no, I didn't get it back. They, oh. they, they didn't want to sell it. Uh, <laughs> but they sent me some photos. So. Sometimes we get good luck in those situations. Yeah, there's another guy in New Zealand had one of my pieces and I tried to negotiate with him to to get it back but then he died and I don't know what happened to it. Uh, I know, so, I, I, that happened to me with a client who died all of a sudden and his wife has like five of my best skateboards and I just want to buy them straight up back to her, back. help her out, whatever, but I just don't know her email, I don't know how to contact her. But uh, I'm, I'm talking to the ghost of Pat Mathis, please, yeah. please remind your wife to see if I want those skateboards back. <laughs> It's for the museum or something. So anyway, around the time I graduated from high school, my mom knew somebody had an art gallery downtown Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And one of her fellow school teachers had a little gallery project in Old Town Sacramento. So she gave me a little two-man show. Somebody else was there, but I had half her gallery. And all my stuff sold, or, or most of it. But for way, I didn't realize it then, but for way too cheap. And I was too dumb to get photographs of everything before oh. I, before the show. Mm. I, I I just didn't know anything. Well, you learn as you. But know. I did have a I did have a like gallery show when I was eighteen, which like, wow, I can really do this. Right, that's huge. <laughs> and then I spent the next thirty years trying to like get gallery shows and not have much luck. <laughs> oh man! So your big break was at eighteen. <laughs> I, I guess the one hit wonder. I no don't know. way, man! You had a good career. But anyway, you know, I got through college and then I went down to Santa Barbara. Uh -huh. I had a girlfriend that moved down there. She was a rich, rich girl, and her dad bought her a house in Isla Vista in Santa Barbara. And she's like, "Well, I don't want to be your girlfriend anymore, but you can come live in my garage." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, okay, that sounds adventurous." <laughs> so I was out of college. And Did it so break I, your heart to live in your ex-girlfriend's garage? Uh, yeah, Isla Vista, <laughs> surfer girls all over the college town. Uh, You're like, yeah, it did a little bit, <laughs> but it, you know, we we all I knew it was coming. Yeah, you know, it, she's one of those people that couldn't keep up. How long uh, did you stay there? Oh, I stayed there th four years. Four years, wow. Well, she introduced me to a character there who had started a little gallery and, and jewelry shop. He was making fabricated jewelry. Mm -hmm. And me and him hit it off right away. And he's like, well, you want to join in with me on making this gallery happen? I'm like, yeah, sure. So anyway, he had another friend. So the three of us managed to run this gallery. And we kept it alive for four years and moved it a couple times until mm. so we got what kept it getting called? a better and better space. We called it Artist Response Galleries. Oh. And we did monthly shows and had parties. We had a we had a, like a, we could set a stage up in the space to have a band and show movies and it wasn't real big, but a little town of Isla Vista, we rocked a place. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was so a cool. really really fun part of my life. Aww. And got to, you know, I'm a businessman on the main street in town. So I, any of the businesses on the street, they all knew who I was. The cops knew who I was. I could feel like a big shot. Mm -hmm. And Isla Vista was a really cool town then. It was full of hippies trying, Wait, to, where is that? trying to make their own city. Right next to Santa Barbara. Where is Santa Barbara? Southern? Southern California. Okay, cool. 
a couple hours drive north of LA. Okay. Beautiful place, you know, yeah. a rich man's land. And Isla Vista was like the student ghetto. Okay. But it was infested with hippies then that were trying to start communes and community gardens and restaurants and food co-ops and all that good hippie stuff was going on really big time. And so we became part of that. And the last year I was there, we organized our town and wanted to incorporate as a city have our own city council and hire our own cops and all that kind of stuff. The county refused to let us do it. Oh. So the county, what they called the Local Agency Formation Commission, the LAFCO, the guys that had the power to let us do this or not, they didn't let us do it. How come? Because Isla Vista was, would vote 80 or 90 percent one way on issues and oil was trying, big oil was trying to come in and build offshore rigs there and all these oil facilities and an oil refinery. They trashed a beautiful canyon, just beautiful freaking canyon. They built an oil refinery in the middle of it. And, uh, so Isla Vista would vote 90 percent against oil. Mm -hmm. So if they could keep us from organizing and getting together, they could prevent us from affecting the politics in the county. Mm. So after we, we went on this really big push to get organized as a city and they denied us and denied us and we knew it wasn't going to happen so half the hippies in town moved away. Said, okay. well if we can't have our city here we'll go do something somewhere else. Mm. They started little intentional communities in Nevada City, Santa Cruz, up and a lot of, a lot of folks went up to Humboldt and got into the grow scene. Mm -hmm. So we had this kind of diaspora where all the, all the builders of community most of them left, right? And right. I was—I left too. We, and they all—you all built little communities elsewhere, then. Yeah, so to speak. We sold our little gallery. I moved up to Santa Cruz, and while I had my little gallery, I had met a couple of people who had been traveling to Indonesia, and they came back with some craft skills. The guy had learned to study wood carving. He'd learned to carve wood, mm -hmm. and the woman had learned how to make beautiful batiks. And I'm just like, well, we sold our gallery. I got a little money. I think I'm going to go travel. So I stashed my stuff in Santa Cruz and went over to Asia and traveled around a bit and did go and learn how to carve some wood and make some batiks and hang out in Indonesia with some super good craftspeople. Like Bali? Yeah. Nice. How long? Um, I've been there three times then. and I. My longest time I was there in Indonesia, nine months. Wow. It's hard to get a visa to stay that long, but I managed to do it. Right. Wow, that's awesome. And that was back in the day before it got super hyped up. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but the, when I got there, the people that were there, well, you should have been here 10 and 20 years ago. The, <laughs> the, the older people that were there then let me know that I was like a newbie yeah. and everything was great until you all got here. Uh, <laughs> well, they were like, you should have been in Bali in the 60s, man. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And now well, you're telling the kids of today, you should have been in Bali in the 70s, man. Well, I went <laughs> back there uh, eight or nine years ago. And um, that's exactly how I felt. God, they trashed this place. Right, it's super Cars Western, and motorbikes everywhere and all these tourists and it's full up and places that were open fields now are covered with buildings. And, right, yeah. And I, I even I, saw a difference between the first time I went in 2005 and a couple of years ago. It's just... It kind of, it kind of, I would say it broke my heart but the Balinese people were able to keep their customary way of life in right. spite of all this influence. Mm -hmm. So 
I got to respect them for that. You can't fuck with those spirits in that island, so that will prevail. Well, no there's a lot more, a lot more Javanese and Muslims because anybody in Indonesia can buy land anywhere else in Indonesia. A lot of rich people from Java who bought villas there and started investing in hotels and real estate and building crap to lease to tourists. You know, so all the all the stuff now when people go to Bali and they're going to a fancy yoga center and they're <laughs> going to eat the vegan perfect food and and all this stuff they're going to they're, they're going to go to Ubud, you know, <laughs> full of fancy hotels. When I was there, there were no paved streets. So if you and you probably went down Monkey Forest Road, where it's full of boutiques and stuff now and hotels. Yeah. Monkey Forest Road was a little trail through the rice paddies. Right. The monkeys owned it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had to walk through the rice paddies to go to where the monkeys were. But the but monkeys. the art there must have inspired you super hard. Oh, absolutely. And I got to meet a lot of artists and hang out. And I hired guys to make stuff to my designs, oh, which that. was way cool. I had a wood carver, I had jewelers, I had ivory carvers, mm -hmm. I had some guys painting some stuff. You know, we usually I'd let them do their motifs. They go, well, make me one of this and make me one of that. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would spend my days there kind of running around to the vis different villages, supervising my workers and checking up on them and picking stuff up when it would get done and design and hanging out at my house, designing stuff. And for 50 bucks, I could rent a little shack down by the beach, mm -hmm. you know, and with a family, you know, they have put up a shack in their backyard. Now those places are all hotels. <laughs> you can't even see the beach. It's covered with concessions, people trying to sell you stuff. I don't know. Well, that's the world in a nutshell, right? Yeah, I guess. Where we, we keep producing and we're all buying everything. But while I was there, I, just, I met other people who were the, the guys that told me you should have been here then. A lot of them had traveled to other islands. Mm -hmm. So my last trip there, before the one in the, recently, my last trip in the old days, I spent most of my time not on Bali. I rented a little house in Bali and then left and went all the way out to by Timor, all the islands to the east of Bali, okay. where you travel on boats and little yeah, airplanes. Yeah, the trees, and, Tralala, and, or further out? Uh, went, well, it's close to New Guinea. Uh-huh. I went all the way to East Timor when I went. Oh, okay, well then you went the same places. East Timor you couldn't go to then because they were having a war with Indonesia. Oh, but West Timor, West Timor, I could go to. Okay. Uh, you had to have a special permit from the cops, and I got it, and went out there. And what's so the this was what like '90s then? No, this is in '70. Okay, so it's eight. Okay, so that's like when they were occupying and stuff. '78 and '79, yeah. I went 2005 to East Timor, and it was like six years after the big genocide. Right, so right. It's just the like, Indonesian army blew everything up and killed as many people as they could. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah well, crazy. when I went there, they were warning us, if you go to Timor, and the cops, when I got my permit there, you go out there, you do not discuss politics. You cannot right. talk about politics. So I go to Timor, and I went up to West Timor, and I get on a truck. You stick out my thumb and get on a truck, and I end up at the border of East Timor. Mm -hmm. Right, right next to the border, and I stayed in this little village. And the first thing that happens is you go find a place to stay, and your hotel owner takes you and your passport to the police station because they have to register you. Mm -hmm. So right away, I'm in the police station. They're looking at my passport. They go, "Well, what do you think about the politics around here?" 
Hmm. <laughs> oh, no. And I had a great discussion about politics with these cops there for a couple hours. Oh, so and yeah, a few a few years later, they were going to be murdering people in Timor, maybe. Oh. But these guys were friendly, genuinely interested, and we actually had a really positive conversation. I don't think anyone is like negative or really wanting to kill anyone. You just get convinced on politics and points of views, and then shit can go down sometimes. Yeah, and the local cops are different than the army. They're mm -hmm. not the same thing. Right. You know, they live there, and they probably have relatives across the border and all that kind of stuff. So I had a great time out there going to those islands. They, the, the arts and crafts they specialize in, or the, their best stuff they have is usually fabric, textiles. Mm -hmm. and every island and even different parts of different islands has their own style of textile weaving and designs. So. I was real interested in all that stuff, so I went out there and collected a lot of textiles. So you were like, kind of like dipping your feet in different uh, mediums at this point. It's not like you were an oil painter like you are today. No, I was trying to figure out how to make a living. Uh -huh. And traveling to Asia, I realized, okay, if I buy cool stuff, when I come back, I can sell it to everybody. Okay, cool. Once so again, your that's trading what I abilities. That's what I did for three different trips. I'd go mm -hmm. and collect stuff, come back and sell it. Marin County had a flea market. Mm -hmm. these, these black guys ran a flea market in Marin City that was awesome. You could go the night before get to this big empty lot, pick out a space, anything that was empty, set up your stuff, have your car there, go to sleep, and then in the morning you wake up, you people are starting to show up to sell at the flea market. You had all your stuff ready to go, all you had to do is get a cup of coffee mm -hmm. and take down the curtains and you're ready to sell for the day. And the Marin folks, they they sh they had money. They knew what they wanted. If you had something cool, somebody's gonna buy it. Right. So nice wood carving, or special weaving, or a blanket from Mexico, or something from Peru. Or those alpaca clothing from Peru and sweaters. There's people, importers and traders from all over would bring their shit to this flea market. It was known for this. Mm -hmm. so and cool. you get people go, hey, do you have a a such and such, a such and such kind of thing. And I go, yeah, but I didn't bring it this weekend. Well, bring it next weekend, I'll buy it. You bring it next weekend and they would show up and buy it. Super cool. So I'd sell, that st I'd sell my stuff to my friends at the flea market in a few, a few shops I could wholesale to and make my money back and go travel again. So I wasn't doing so much fine art, but I was designing a lot of stuff. Mm. In my house, there you see some wood carvings those are all things I designed. Yeah, I, I thought that was like your style, but I was like, well, I didn't know Mark could like wood carve so polished things. But if you're giving it to Balinese workers, then well, that's yeah, who and, did it. And they showed me a lot because, because if they weren't doing it the way I wanted, I'd pick up the tool and say, no, they'll make whack it like this. And they go, wait, 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 no, before you fuck it up do it like this <laughs> and so they would show me how to use the tools while I would show them what I wanted how I wanted things to go on the wood so I learned I learned how to carve some wood from them and I bought myself some tools and stuff so beautiful I do know how to do it Suck, man um, admirable when I came back with my wood carvings I made them into bronze carving bronze castings though mm -hmm. I learned how to make molds and make molds off my wood pieces Amazing. and then make waxes and then cast them in the lost wax. You gotta show me some later. Yeah, I don't know if you got any. Yeah, there's a couple in the house. Sick. Yeah. Um, so. I didn't make very many. The bronze stuff is very expensive to produce. I didn't have a lot of money. So getting them made kind of 
Yeah, yeah no, and you need an investor was, for that. Selling was hard too, because they had to sell for a couple thousand dollars. And right, and who has that much? Well, folks do, but I didn't really know. You don't them. know them, yeah. yeah. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the seventies, and I could imagine as you know that you might have delved into like psychedelics at a time, but I also know that Indonesia is super not into any kind of drugs, even well, weed. How do they survive? Act man? Actually, back then. While ganja was technically illegal, it was easy to get. It wasn't very good, but I, I, there was a crew of kids living. I lived down in Legion, part of the beach, part of Bali, mm -hmm. and there was a little gang of kids there that had control. The guy that had control of the pot market was—he had a bad leg, so he couldn't—he couldn't do field work. You know his. And he, he couldn't, couldn't run. Be, he, and he couldn't run away if he screwed you. <laughs> well, no, but because he had a disability, mm -hmm. all the other guys let him have the drugs business or the, yeah. the weed business anyway. I didn't mess with any other drugs there. Yeah, yeah. He had the weed business, so that guy <coughs> was the guy to see for weed, and everybody knew him, and everybody knew who he was, and the, his, all his buddies protected him, so it, it, it was all safe. The dangerous thing to mess with then was heroin. There were there were guys that messed with heroin, which I didn't ever bother with. And there was uh, mushrooms. Bali had mushrooms. They still do. Where mm -hmm. The restaurants would advertise special mushroom tea, mm. special mushroom soup, special mushroom omelet. Mm. So you could go to a restaurant and order, say, mushroom soup was fast working. The omelet was the slowest working thing. Mushroom tea was quick. But you could order a mushroom dish. It was an extra 50 cents or something. And they'd put a bunch of these little Liberty Cap type mushrooms that grew down there. Mm. They'd put those in it and yeah, it worked great. Nice. <laughs> I didn't find any mushrooms in Bali, but I in the island over Lombok, was it? or Lombok is the next uh, island to the east. Right, there my guest house was offering the tea and then you could go snorkeling very easily oh, okay. on the beach, so that was very fun. Back then, a famous place to get mushrooms was if you went to Yogyakarta in okay. central Java. Okay, yeah, yeah. About 40 miles south of there on the coast was a town called Parangtritis. Okay. And they had mushrooms all over the place there. And all the local people were ready to sell them to you. Wow, interesting. They, they, they loved it when tourists showed up because they were just living in little huts. But and they'd always have tons of mushrooms. And but meanwhile, when you arrive to the airport, the signs are really clear. You come in with weed, we will murder you. Yeah, now they are. But back then, they didn't have that. Oh, it wasn't so bad? It, it, no, not nearly. Uh, that's, that's, it wasn't that's a big... It, it, it was illegal, and they could give you jail time. If you got caught with a bag of weed, you'd do a month in jail, maybe. Yeah. If you got, caught, if you got caught with a, you know, half a gram of heroin, you might do a year in jail. If you got caught dealing heroin, they're gonna throw the book at you. You might do 10 years. But now they kill you. Well, they say they will. Oh, they, they don't? I think they killed one Australian woman that oh, had wow. a surfboard full of, of hash or something. I don't know. That's gnarly. Um, so when did you go, come back to California and get into the psychedelic scene? Uh, wanna, Whoa. Uh, you know, you're, you're like a big psychedelic yeah, artist, and I could imagine you like let's, swam let's the go, oceans. Let's go back to high school. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to 1966 uh -huh. when I first went down to the Haight-Ashbury, and it was in full flower. 
And all the hippies there said, oh, you punks, come back when you're grown up and we'll get you high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but we came back the next summer. That was grown up enough. Mm -hmm. And then, and then and we then could they were gone. We could score ganja and LSD on the street there then. <coughs> and in Sacramento, it was around. Okay. My first acid trip, we went to, uh, there was a local hamburger stand okay. called, uh, I forget what it was called. Burger, not Burger King, but something like that. But it, Burger Acid. You get burger, burger Outlet. I don't know, but you, you the, the kids working, Acid King. the kids working at the burger stand, knew where stuff was. Uh -huh. So you could go there and order a Coke with a lid in it. Now a lid is a bag of weed, uh, maybe half an ounce, quarter to half an ounce of weed was a lid. Uh -huh. You could buy a, a baggie full, like three fingers wide, full of weed, of, filled up to here. Mm -hmm. It was like a lid. So for ten dollars and ten cents, Coke was ten cents the cup. You get a, you could order a Coke with a lid in it, wow. instead of a lid on it. Uh huh. And for so you drink the Coke and that would get you. No, they give you the cup with a bag of weed in there. Ah, gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> you order this. Hey, I want a Coke with a lid in it. Uh -huh. The guy in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, buddy. <laughs> that was an extra you, you had to 10 know bucks? The people. You had to know the people. Mm -hmm. But they had, they had also a hamburger, you know, with a tab of LSD in it. You could get a burger with L an LSD burger for like five bucks. But like, so you're eating the burger and the burger itself gets you high or is it separate and then later you eat it? Either way. Okay. <laughs> Either way. But burger? anyway, anyway, we went up, we went, my friends, we were all going to go have a sleepover at one buddy's house that had a room that was separate from the house, uh -huh. you know, a separate space. And so we could all go stay there and raise hell. His parents, nobody would wake up. We wouldn't bug anybody. So we stopped, you know, we're going over to his house and the burger stands in between. So we stopped there like, yeah, let's, let's score some LSD. Mm -hmm. Let's try this stuff. We've heard all about it. Let's try it out. How old were you? 15, 15 wow. and a half. Cool. So sure enough, somebody showed up. We didn't buy it from the guy working there, but somebody else showed up that had some mm -hmm. that we knew. And so we all got a little tab of LSD and went over to my friend's house and took LSD and listened to, we listened to Creedence Clearwater and the first Grateful Dead album and some other record albums, HP Lovecraft, some other weird obscure vinyl mm -hmm. and watched TV. And what was on TV was The Nutty Professor, the first yeah. one. Where the, where the professor, he's a nerd and he drinks this magic elixir and turns into Mr. Cool. Ooh. So it matched perfectly. Right. <laughs> so, you know, did that kind of like revolutionize the way you saw things? Like what did LSD Absolutely. do? Absolutely. LSD taught me how to see stuff. Uh, aside from psychic revelations and visiting with God and come into grips with the idea of dying and all that other good stuff LSD can help you out with. It taught me visually how to look at stuff, how to analyze colors, how to see patterns, you know, in waves or tree branches or leaves or veins or erosion, all that kind of stuff. Um, it taught you how to look at it, really understand it, see, see nature. I'm really thankful for that. It's really, LSD is probably my greatest teacher you know, of something external to me. Mm -hmm. It's pro probably taught me the most stuff. And we used to take it all the time, every weekend. And 
hitchhike down to San Francisco and go see bands, you know, at the Grateful Dead and the Starship, or not Starship, that was the airplane then. Right. And all the San Francisco bands, we'd save our lunch money. It was only three fifty to get in. Mm. So if you saved up, if you could scrape up five bucks a week, you could get a hit of acid and your thumb, get down to San Francisco and go to a show. Wow, those were the days, And eh? if you were really rolling in it, you could get a little more money together and go have, you know, dinner in a funky Chinese restaurant and, uh, and stuff. And if you stayed down in the city, you could walk over to the San Francisco Art Institute, climb up a back stairway and sleep on their roof. Oh. And if you didn't make a mess or trash the place, it was okay. So they allowed it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So we were always really respectful. Uh -huh. and could stay there and, and we had a couple other places to stay after a while it's beautiful but it started out we'd go you know go to the show and then hike a couple mile walk mm -hmm. between where the venue was and the, the artist to but you know it's three in the morning you're walking around san francisco you're a stoned hippie cops never bothered us cool. so so that's that that's so that so i grew up in the milieu of lsd Mm -hmm. And I was telling you about uh, our drama club adventures in high school. Mm -hmm. Well, the biggest adventure we went on was my teacher, the same guy from junior high, mm -hmm. Pat Monahan was his name. He was buddies with Ken Kesey oh. from his college days. Damn. So he called up Ken and said, hey, Ken, we want to do One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for our high school play. Can you, can you send us some scripts? So he sent us the scripts and the author's note, giving us permission. And it had only been performed once before on Broadway in New York City, and it failed. Oh. Didn't, didn't, maybe went, ran a month, maybe. It didn't, didn't run very long. So we put on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a high school play. Wow, that's so cool. And it was cool. It was the coolest thing I ever did in high school. We had what you call total environment theater uh -huh. so the stage and the audience are all in the same room uh, together were that were the people the audience like inmates or something yes <laughs> so we made it we made a big day room with a nurse's station i don't oh. know if everybody's familiar with that movie if you're not go see one flew over the cuckoo's nest with jack, jack nicholson. nicholson they did a great job right and, and the book is excellent too and read it as well the book's better than the movie anyway oh, cool Anyway, so we made the, this whole, and I'm, I was in charge of the sets. So we built the day room with the nurses station and stuff and the audience. We only, we didn't have, try to have a huge audience, a hundred or two at a time maybe, and they would fit into this day room and, and we would park, the actors would be planted among the audience. So as their turn to speak would come up in the script, they would jump up out of the audience and go crazy. Mm. So if you were an audience member, you might be sitting next to somebody that was dressed a little funny that would like sit there and pick their nose or scratch their armpit the whole time until suddenly they burst out going crazy. Ah, I like that. It worked out really well. It, mm. it worked out so well that the colleges around, we had to run it two extra weekends. So all the college kids whose who's drama professors told them to go see our performance. Wow. So Ken Kesey himself. We Did he had, show up? Yeah, oh yeah, we oh. decided at the end of this we were going to have a big old cast party. Did he show up in the bus? <laughs> he didn't show up in the bus, but he did show up He did show up with Ken Babs wow. and a couple of his prankster buddies. Oh, that's so cool, man. And one of our, one of our local artists, one of my art mentors, it's a whole other story, lived right around the corner. He's a commercial artist, and he let us use his house. 
for the cast party. His daughter was who made all the posters for the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had Ken Casey and a house full of freaks all night long, and nice. we, the LSD was there. Everybody took some. Wow! One of the you did LSD with Ken Casey. Oh yeah! So cool. Oh, yeah. And one of the things about the play was half the cast members took LSD while they were performing in what? all the performances. Because well, they were supposed to be they were supposed, supposed to be crazy. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the people, especially the extras, would be really high while they were at the play. Wow, damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. So what we had a, a time to we, we had a cra- <laughs> we had a crazy cast party. Ken Casey showed up with his buddies all the way from Oregon. Yeah. Uh, we partied with those guys hard and it was like definitely a gold star part of my life wow beautiful congrats man so so that so lsd and psychedelics it's it's kind of like it wasn't like a before and after it was like we grew up together so to speak that's beautiful mark so so when when psychedelic movement number two came around when's that <laughs> that's you know the, the 90s or late oh. 80s middle, okay when, when guys like you started figuring it out Okay. It was, and, and what you call psychedelic stuff now is a whole other can of worms. Because mm-hmm. our psychedelic scene died off and became punk and disco. Okay. And, and Republicans like George Bush, you know, of my generation, most of the people of my generation were very conservative. You right. think of the wild 60s and stuff. Okay, at Woodstock there was half a million people. Mm-hmm. Well, that was all the hippies. Mm-hmm. There weren't very many. They, they, but there became a lot over time. Right. But at first there weren't very many, so a very small minority of people made a huge impact on Hollywood and the music scene and graphic design and everything started being reflecting the, the, the few what the few hippies in the 60s innovated became mainstream. Right, as and they turned into adults. And then it got so mainstream it got boring, mm-hmm. so people had to rebel by chopping their hair off and putting a, 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 a Which is safety night. pin through their nose and stuff. Yeah, right. and it'd be punks. Like and everything just turned Well, black. in the 80s, late 70s, in the 80s and early 90s, everything went punk. Uh-huh. And that was when I was traveling a lot in Asia. Uh-huh. So I kind of missed out on the whole... You stayed in the colorful life. land. <laughs> Yeah, but I'd come back and visit my buddies in the in, in the Bay Area, and they'd go, "Oh, let's go see so and so," you know. And I'd be like, "Oh, okay," and I'd go see the punk band, and it was it was still better than disco. <laughs> <laughs> right. At least there was crazy energy there. <laughs> so there was a revival after that period, as you said, uh, psychedelic era number two. When would that be? Well, it's all these things never really went out of style. And after a while, there became more hippies. What started it off the second time around, <clears throat> as you probably know, there were festivals like Woodstock, and you probably have heard of Altamont, where the Hells Angels beat a guy to death. Right, Rolling they, Stones you know, and, and they got in a fight with the Jefferson Airplane guys. I think Marty Balin had a punch out with a, with a Hells Angel. Wow, because they were the security guards. They, yeah, there was, a, but all that put the kibosh on festivals for the better part of five years there weren't any, I mean you could go to a blues festival and hear B.B. King mm-hmm. or a country festival and hear maybe some twangy country western dudes but rock and roll was out rock and roll the big festivals they just didn't have them wow. go to a punk club a few hundred people would be banging their heads with a band okay great but big shows with thousands of people outdoors camping out uh-uh no way but then somehow the Grateful Dead 
this was after many years, got permission from the County of Monterey to have a festival for three days out at Laguna Seca Racetrack. And I don't know why I didn't go. <laughs> fool. Yeah, I am a fool. I didn't, I don't, <laughs> maybe I wasn't living, I don't know where I was living then, I can't remember. But they had a three-day festival there that it went off really well. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah, Grateful Dead fans walked through the minefield of Fort Ord to get there and sneak in and through other people's private property. There were some complaints, but basically the Deadheads were pretty well behaved and they didn't leave a big mess. You know, they cleaned up after themselves and they didn't fight and nobody got stabbed and it, it went off okay. Mm -hmm. So things started loosening up. Mm. and. So you can thank the good old Grateful Dead for kicking off the whole festival world again. Nice. And so they started touring around, doing two or three day stands at different places. And so if they're gonna be there more than one day, well, people get hungry. So guys would set up a little grilled cheese station, you know, or, or, or make pizza slices or something. And other people would wanna follow them around and be able to go to the next place. So the whole deadhead shakedown street thing started evolving because when I was in, high school, in the 80s and before, this didn't exist. You went to a dead show, the only people selling stuff were people selling drugs out front. Or maybe a t-shirt, but that, that was it. So this whole shakedown thing developed where people would go and follow the band around and set up a little stall or something off the back of their vehicle or whatever and make little crafts and try to make some money and it became this huge thing. Mm -hmm. And other bands, lot, other right? bands and promoters saw this phenomenon going on and started copying it. So the whole festival, camp out, three days, um, revived and came back. So what years is this, like 80s? Nice. Late, late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. When did you get in that, that scene and when did you start selling your art Well, there? Well, going to the Grateful Dead shows, like, like I said, at first there wasn't any vending scene, but then it did start happening and I, I was, at this time I was marketing my art, yeah, this would be the 80s, late 80s, middle 80s, all the 80s. Anyway, um, there were like new age fairs crystal fairs that people would be selling tarot card decks and mm -hmm. their little crystals and you could get your aura read and get an aura t photographed and you get your stuff. chakras bled or whatever you know you can meet a guy that meditates you know Ram Das might be the lecturer before he had his stroke you know Tim Leary maybe would show up and talk if you were at a really crazy one but so they there were these new age fairs and they were they liked like fantasy type art you know a lot of dolphins and unicorns but my art was it fit in enough that people would buy stuff from me at these fairs mm -hmm. so I would go and get a little booth or set up a card table or join with some other artists and make something happen and this is where I met uh, the health and harmony festival folks Okay. Um, some of the artists that were there went to some of these other shows I was at and invited me to well come to this show it's only 25 bucks you can show whatever you want as long you know and it's really cool so I started going to that and I met a whole lot of other visionary artists there is that what now is known as Harmony Festival yeah okay 
Health and Harmony was what it was called. It's it's no longer exists, but it, it morphed over a few years into different things. Mm -hmm. But they were always kind to visionary artists, and uh, so I met some other artists there, and I could sell a few things and kind of like see which of my things sold well and stuff. And while that was going on, I, I went to uh, a show. I forget who it was at the Oakland Coliseum. A big show, big stadium show that I normally didn't go to. But somebody said you could get tickets at the door, so I went there. Yeah, I managed to score some cheap tickets at the door. And I went in there, and walking around the parking lot was a guy with some psychedelic black and white posters where he had like a sandwich board. He was walking around with his posters and a backpack full of them rolled up. Mm -hmm. And I had some greeting cards and photos of my stuff, and I'm like, mm -hmm. hey, dude, what do you got? And he showed me, and I showed him what I had, and we did a little trading, and this was Phil Cutno. Okay. And you probably have met him. And Phil was doing these black and white pictures that were pretty crazy. And mm -hmm. I'm like, dude, are you making any money at this? And he goes, yeah, last summer I made $50,000 following the Grateful Dead around. And I'm yeah. like... Wow, that's pretty sick. It's sure blowing away what I make at these little new age fairs. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I better like take heed. And right around then, Monty's friend Melissa, so they ran into each other, one of her high school friends. And Melissa is like an old hippie, an old hog farmer. She's in the hog farm. And she's like, well, you guys should come to our show. Well, what is your show? Well, we're going to do this thing called Laguna Seca Days. Okay. which was going to revive when the dead came there but it didn't have the Grateful Dead but it had Mickey Hart's band and Bob Dylan it had a good bands mm -hmm. and so we're like yeah okay so she put us in touch with the Bill Graham vendor fair folks who accepted me and rented me a space there and we did really well I made a pile of money nice and so we started going more to musical events that were two and three day shows than trying to like follow the, I didn't want to follow the Grateful Dead on tour. It was too much trouble. Yeah. I, I had places to live and stuff. And mm -hmm. It just was, you know, I wasn't nomadic enough to do that really. So I figured, well, there's enough little festivals around. Mm -hmm. And there was the Health and Harmony Festival and there was a little festival in Garberville, the Redwood Mountains Fair that some of my grower buddies told me I could do good at. So I started getting a whole little tour. Of this these, is what, uh, 90s? Yeah, okay. 80s, 80s, late 80s and early 90s. Wow, so late you're super 80s, was, OG with this late whole Late 80s, like... I was by myself doing the New Age fairs. Uh -huh. And then in the 90s, I met my wife, Monty, in 88. She was real supportive. I didn't have a vehicle. She had a little pickup truck. She that would just take my truck and go to so I built myself some panels and we'd go to fairs. She had a regular job, so sometimes on weekends she would come with me, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. But eventually it started working where I was making you know, some okay money and I started printing more photos of my stuff and framing my stuff and experimenting in color reproduction, what's the best way to get color prints and started selling all these things and it became a regular business where we're doing 15 or 20 shows over the course of a year or mostly in the summer crazy and that and with her having a job i could spend the rest of my time making paintings you mm -hmm. know if i wasn't working at these shows i could make paintings we had a little house in watsonville that had a big shop 
where I had, you know, I had a shot as big as this one here. So I could set up all my tools and be productive. So that's kind of what happened. Beautiful. So by the time I met you for the first time in 2005, Reggae on the River, Reggae Festival, your booth was already stocked up with a bunch of products where I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? He's like an artist selling his own products, amazing art. It was like, the, you're like kind of like the role model for like what hundreds to thousands of kids are doing today in the Well, it uh, kind of worked out that, it kind of worked out that way. Um, the Harmony folks eventually were nice enough to let me manage 20 other artists and would give me a couple of thousand square feet of real estate at their festival to set up an art world in. Mm -hmm. And we called it Transformations Art Village. Which, so I had to like get fill it up with artists. So I'd you know, tell everybody, hey, do you want to show some pictures? And, mm -hmm. and eventually, you know, some younger people were getting a little hungry and wanting to be artists. So they started contacting me and wanting to jump in and do that. Nice. And, you know, yeah, we need energy. Let's, this is let's, before the Internet. So like the chances to show your art were like yeah, way this was, harder. This was be yeah, the first. I think we made our first web page in like 91 or 92. There was web pages in 91? Well, first there was first there was what they called the news net news where you had little you go it would like news dot something dot art would be where people would go and you could post pictures there but you had to post them in code. So they had these encoders. Right. So you could encode your picture, you could scan your picture, mm. encode it post the code up on the what was then the internet and if you had access to the newsnet news through like what was what now became email mm -hmm. um, you could go and look if you had a decoder mm -hmm. you could go look at what other art people were putting up you could also go look at a whole lot of nasty porn and oh yeah already blood, porn blood was rampant in oh, the internet yeah. <laughs> that's the reason yeah, why yeah yeah well that's <laughs> the usenet news well anyway somebody came up with the idea of a web browser uh -huh. and they made these ones called web crawler or chameleon there were a bunch of different web browsers that netscape became the one that worked the best mm -hmm. so as those things developed web pages got more sophisticated mm -hmm. and luckily i knew the people down in santa cruz had been having these things they called digital Valentine's parties. And these were the computer nerds that started Apple and stuff, mm -hmm. would have these Valentine's parties where everybody would show off, it was like show and tell. Look at what I've been working on. It's Look, it's an Apple One. Mm -hmm. Look, oh my God, you can make a picture there out of little squares. Mm -hmm. Wow, amazing. 50 squares by 50 squares. Wow, big resolution. And, and so anyway, people would bring their little computer projects and show off to each other and so we all got to know each other That's so cool. I knew all the nerds in Santa Cruz mm. and this 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 one girl son was really pretty smart at this stuff she actually was a genius she had put together a computer company that made was doing millions of dollars of business by the time they sold it mm. she was working with them and she knew how to make web pages in HTML so mm. she made me a basic web page and said well here it is says, I don't have time to deal with you. I'm too busy with other projects, but here's how you look at the code and wow. just figure it out. That's crazy. So that's so super old school. I looked at my code on my web page and broke it apart bit by bit by changing stuff. If you turn around right now, you'll see a big deer. Turned 180 degrees. Wow, beautiful. Hello, big deer. That's the mama. There's a fawn around somewhere. 
I wanna I wanna film it. Hurry up, hurry up, she's gonna move. Gorgeous. Alright. B-roll. So 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 anyway, she showed me how to how to uh Disas how to break down my web page by code and figure stuff out, you know, how to p do the padding and make the frames and all that. It was real basic. HTML only had about 100 commands then. Mm -hmm. So I went on somewhere where I was able to download all the known commands of HTML and we started building web pages. So you're selling your art at festivals and w when I look at your art, it sucks to throw labels at people's art, but I, what I like about your art is that it's a, it changes depending on the painting. You got a style for sure. Sometimes you paint nature, sometimes you paint love. Sometimes you paint what people would call psychedelic visionary art. Sometimes you paint political art. But I would say that uh, at least the current platform where you're very well known and respected would be the visionary art scene. Um, when did you see that thing uh, existing and like how, you know, how, how was your interaction with that platform that, you know, loves you so much? Well, well, back in the, back in the, when the Harmony Festival was starting to get going, we had a little visionary arts club. Okay. That met in San Francisco every month or two, you know, 20 or so of us would meet and what show what we're doing. This is like late 70s. Wow. And so it's a long late term. late 70s and early 80s. So it's, it's a term that's been around for oh, yeah. all of history. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the California Visionaries was a society of visionary artists. That they were centered out of the San Francisco Art Institute, the place where we'd go sleep on the roof. Mm -hmm. The kids that were actually going there and some of the professors had their own little visionary show club. And they were the guys that inspired me. Mm. So we, Bill Martin and Gage Taylor and Thomas Akawi and a couple of ladies. There was about 10 of these artists who, some of them became quite established, but their circle was pretty small and didn't get out into the big world quite as much. Okay. And then, okay, so the 80s rolled around and the rave scene started happening. And, you know, I was selling at the New Age fairs and at Grateful Dead shows and stuff. But the rave scene, because watching a DJ play with his laptop is actually rather boring. Mm -hmm. So the rave kids went in for visual entertainment in a big way that was decoration, light shows, crazy costumes, stuff that all the hippies loved was revived by the ravesters, but in their own style, of course. Right. You know, it was new, a lot of the music I didn't care for, but the spirit of the thing was, was the same, Hell really. Yeah. Take, a bunch, take a bunch of crazy drugs, meet your true love, mm -hmm. and have a crazy orgiistic party all over the map. Yeah, I love it. Yep, it was great. <laughs> so, but I was, you know, that really, really wasn't my world, but I recognized that there was something good there. Mm -hmm. And a crossover festival came about, the Earth Dance. And some other festivals where they're big three-day campout festivals, and this is where people started, uh, and younger people too. Well, we're here. We'll bring our canvas. We might as well like try to paint while the band's playing. So at the High Sierra or the Earth Dance, I knew the promoters and stuff because I'd rent booths there. Hey, can we go in the no man's land between the rail and the stage and set up an easel and paint? And sometimes they'd say yes. 
So this sort of happened spontaneously all over the place. I wasn't the only one. Other people like Fred, this guy Frenchie in New Orleans was doing it, and Scramble Campbell out, out at Red Rocks in Colorado was doing the same, same idea. So eventually at places like Earth Dance and other shows, those guys would come to California. We all kind of met each other and would try to do live painting stuff. And this is where I met Amanda, was at one of those Earth Dances, her and her boyfriend pull the canvas up to the front and, hey, can we paint up here? And like, yeah, we got lots of room. Mm -hmm. So she started and pretty soon in a couple of years, there'd be 20 or 30 kids would show up with their art stuff to a show and want to live paint to the band. Mm -hmm. the, the cleverer of them figured out how to get free passes or even get paid or would so, bring so some swag. So this is like late 2000s by now? But like when all the uh, early, like life, early, life. This would be still the 90s. Really? Yeah, and it, well, it started taking off even more. It just got bigger. Okay. That the, f yeah, I think I met Amanda in like 2005 or something. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, it just got bigger and bigger. And and younger artists, I guess a few of them saw me selling stuff at my booth. <laughs> they go, hey, well, I could actually make a living doing that maybe, and so they would try it out. And some of them, of course, became successful. Some didn't. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like Zavi and Carrie became real successful and Amanda got real successful and Autumn Sky, a lot of these people do a lot better than I ever will probably now. It's uh, not all better, just different. <laughs> well, better, I mean like more well-known, more followers, okay. making more money. Marketing. Whatever the signs of success are. Right. Or yourself, you're like, I consider you a, a marketing wizard because you're really good at the business stuff and you made it work really well for you. And Thanks to man, the point there's where good times and bad times, stuff. but you know, you yeah, keep I never, I never wanted to get quite that complicated, having to deal with all the people and employees because I'm a lazy ass, but you pull it off really well, so kudos. I try my best, but I also try to not let it get too big or it will stress me out. Right, right. So how, do you, how do you find the happy medium? Uh, I just delegate yeah. and I tell the, the workers, like, like say my brand manager, if you want to blow it up huge, do whatever you want as long as you're not expecting anything from me i just want to paint and cruise and do my mystic thing well my, my crew was became my wife uh, <laughs> right. she was real supportive and eventually we were making enough money that she told her boss to take a hike mm -hmm. at her corporate job but how lucky are you that your wife is your uh, artist uh, manager i'm too? very lucky well she's she's maybe not as managerial as she could be but she's not afraid to work books and numbers and keep the, keep the records. She answers your emails too, right? She answers a lot of the emails. She makes sure the taxes are paid. She makes sure all the numbers are right. Everybody owe money to gets paid on time. That's so sweet, dude. She takes care of all that stuff and she kind of likes doing that because in her corporate job, she did that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So she actually kind of likes sitting in front of her terminal and doing all the data entry. And she so she's not even bitter about it. No. She's not like, you're doing the fun stuff and I'm doing the boring stuff. No, not at all. <laughs> it's more like, hey we do really good yeah. we could afford to go to brazil for a month or something Sick. let's go what a great team <laughs> yeah. so she'd never been out of the country so i was able to take her traveling a lot of times and show her the world and we're going to do more of course beautiful but, i hope i am as lucky as you so i lucked out in that way you know not everybody gets a good partner yeah. but anyway so it was. It's so now you got so a bit, like an art business, like you know, that's being successful for many years. How was it during the COVID years? Was it still cruising fine? Yeah, we we well, 
because I'm getting old and a little creakier and like lifting all the stuff to set up my booth, everything became 20 pounds heavier this last year, mm. somehow. Okay. Everything got heavier. All my boxes and panels and booth and all that shit now it weighs a ton and when it used to be like no problem <laughs> you need an intern or an assistant well I, well if i want to pursue this but but the business has changed a lot too promoters are greedier uh, what used to be a hundred dollars for a booth is now a thousand so the financial risk of doing a show is a lot higher right so you got to go all in or not at all and and uh the scene changed quite a bit. And there's a lot of younger artists that are hungry, real hungry, and will do anything to get in a show. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm all spoiled rotten, you know, I want a, I want a vendor parking spot. I want a food meal ticket. I want right. a guaranteed booth space. If you're live painting, you gotta get paid for it. Well, whatever it is, it's, mm -hmm. you know, I'm more spoiled. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind paying for a booth space. As long as I can do what I can do, then I can make a lot of money. Right. We did, we did a show up the road just like two weekends ago. Okay. First one in a year and a half. How did it go? It worked out really well. Nice. They were super careful about COVID. You had to show a vaccine card or proof of test wow. to come in. They were really strict about it. Mm -hmm. So everybody felt fairly safe. You know, was it, was it actually safe? I don't know. I haven't heard any repercussions. Did uh, your online sales do better during these uh, down years? Um, maybe a little bit. We pushed it a little harder, mm -hmm. you know, trying to attract people. How's your online sales scene doing? Because you got like a whole scenario in your garage where you build your own it uh, could, canvases, it, right? it could be a lot better. Okay. I'm, not, I'm no Alex Gray. I don't get 600 orders a day. I don't think <laughs> none of us are, but still, we don't have to be neither. Once again, that sounds very stressful, what he's doing. Yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, in some ways, I wouldn't want to be those guys. It's too much. Uh, when yeah. I hang out with them, and God bless them, and I love them so much, but they're going from meeting to meeting to meeting. No, it's they're like, always, always they're in demand somewhere. Right. Yeah, to have a few minutes in their studio time, just hanging out, talking or painting with those guys is rare. Right. It's so. uh, in, in the workshops that I teach, I'm always saying like, hey, be ambitious and the sky's the limit, but also don't make it so big that then you're not even enjoying it anymore. Like having a simple conversation with a friend and just, you know, well, painting for fun. When I first got together with Monty and she quit her job and we decided to really do this full on, our agreement is if it isn't fun, we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So over the years, as we got older and creakier and tireder, we dropped back to about five shows the year before COVID. I think we only did five shows instead of 20. Oh, wow. And so it's like, yeah, pick the ones that are the best money makers and make up the difference on the web. Okay. And so that's kind of how it's been. And last year, a year and a half, we didn't do anything really. A, a few gallery shows where I had pieces in a gallery or something, but, mm -hmm. but as far as live selling and stuff, no, not at all. Did it screw up your financials? It, it was a dent. But, but you're chilling. But yeah, it's like the way I set up my life is kind of funny. I didn't ever work for Social Security. My wife gets Social Security. Okay. I didn't ever work for that. But what I did do when I had some money was buy a little bit of real estate. I bought a lot down in Santa Cruz, mm -hmm. and I bought a little farm and another big a big lot in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. 
So I figured when the time got right, I would sell these things and be getting a little money from them. So that's kind of how it worked out. Nice. So well, I get I get a smart. monthly income from from my who I sold my Santa Cruz land to, and I have a chunk of change in the bank just padding from selling my Costa Rica property. This house here is paid for. I put in a solar system, so all my electricity is free. Well, as free as can be, and my water. We have well water that's also solar powered. So the sun powers my life here so I don't have to pay water or electrical bills. Mm -hmm. So my real bills are taxes and health care, food, maintaining cars, you know, stuff, the basic stuff. But And you don't have mortgage. I don't have a mortgage. Yeah. So you're kind of chilling. We have taxes, you know, it costs $10 a day to live here for taxes. But... It's better in Canada. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad at all. Mm -hmm. I have no complaints. Nice. And so, so we're set up to coast, so to speak. So to go a year with no income, I could do it. But then the state was really nice and kicked us down around $15,000 all told last year for various unemployments mm -hmm. and whatever, financial incentives. Beautiful. You know, they, they gave us a bunch of money. So basically, we lived on that all year, and actually, I actually banked money last year. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, great. So do you think? I know that sounds hard, hard to believe, but I did. Like you will always paint, no matter if you're making money or not. But do you think you'll go back to the business of trying to sell your products and your paintings, or chill out on that and just um, retire? Probably somehow? what business-wise, what I'm looking at is. You know, we experiment a little with licensing deals, which you're real good at. I have a couple of those for clothing and stuff. But keeping track of those and getting paid royalties on time and making sure their books are right and all that stuff, it's a freaking nightmare. But you got and, Monty. Yeah, but she's not, she likes to keep track, but she doesn't like to call up people and say, hey, I need to get paid now. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't like to do that. Sweet. Yeah, I, I do some of that. Uh, it's that time. We haven't seen any money for a while. <laughs> What's going on, you guys? So l licensing is a possibility. We could pursue it more. Uh, you're a wizard at that. Uh, yeah, I've, but I've also chilled out because uh, my brand manager tells me like that the more I license my art to other brands, it competes with our brand, and we're trying to make our brand something that yeah. really yeah. Makes there's us there's profits. there's that. So I don't so know. So I have a few wholesale accounts where I sell prints and cards and you know less expensive stuff to retail stores, mm -hmm. which works out okay, and then. Internet, I sell more like G clays and prints and stuff. And right. every now and then I get a big score nice. where somebody you wants You got your own machine, of course? Uh, no, I don't. I, I farm it out. You should, uh, you should get your own machine. They're uh, like four or thousand bucks, man. Yeah, but then you got to be printing enough to keep the machine alive all the time. Yes. And I don't, my volume isn't enough to. Mm. Right. I, I had a long talk with Allison about this one time mm -hmm. about how do they do it. They get it, they farm it out. And I oh, said, yeah, I said why? Because we don't want to bother having to maintain the machines. Okay. I just bought a machine, or at least my brand manager, Corey, just got one for our yeah. company. And, and Jen has one. Right. But I, 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 I've talked with her about printing on it lots of times. About it. We never have. Mm -hmm. And she's off. I don't even know. Where's her machine now? Yeah, sitting there doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> good old Jen. <laughs> so we're coming to the end of... Uh, 
our show and at the battery of my cameras. Uh, Mark, uh, would you have some final words of wisdom to the different people and artists who have been uh, listening to this lovely conversation? Well, it's been, it's been an interesting adventure, not only trying to make my own life work as an artist, <clears throat> but watching some of the younger people come up. And some of y'all will be successful, some maybe not so much. But what it really does take is you got to be devoted and you got to work at it all the time and be crazy enough to throw all your stuff in a car and drive 300 miles and go camp out in the woods in the rain somewhere and hope people show up and buy stuff. Mm -hmm. Or if you can get a live painting gig, you know, getting the promoters to actually pay you and do what they say they're going to do. All those things are challenges. There's a business aspect to being an artist. Don't be afraid of numbers and business. It's just another game. Nobody's an expert. Nobody knows what they're doing. It's all stumbling around in the dark. And a few people find the door and other people don't. But if you work hard, eventually you'll, you'll feel the doorknob and be able to open the door. Mm -hmm. it's, but find, something, find something you love to do, though, for your subject matter or how you paint or your style. Just make sure you enjoy it because you're going to be doing this your whole life. Totally. So make sure it's something you like to do. You know, if you want to paint flowers your whole life, paint flowers and be happy. You want to paint puppy dogs, great. Lots of people will pay you good money for pet portraits. <laughs> so anything that works is acceptable. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It was uh, such a beautiful uh, conversation. I loved uh, learning so much about your history and your points of views and, uh, you know, just so many aspects of yourself. It, I'm so grateful and, and thank you so much. I love you as a friend and as a person and thanks for having me over to your home and yeah. doing this for me, man. Well, we all got to... One of the things I learned as an artist is it's not a competition. It's not an art battle. It's not who's the best. We're all in it together. And yeah. it, the more we all help each other rise up, then we all rise up. Yeah, and totally. what it's really all about is creating consciousness in the mind of the public that art is something valid and cool that they want in their house and in their life. Right. That art is something that art brings joy to you. Mm -hmm. And this last couple weekend ago when we were at the festival, the last thing that happened to me while we were packing up is this woman came up and she's like, I just want to tell you, I grew up with your art in my house my whole life. My parents had it, and I looked at your pictures every single day of my whole life, and they meant so much to me, and I just wow. want to let you know that you were a huge influence of goodness in my life. Beautiful. You can't pay for that stuff. No, that's as good as it gets for yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't buy that. And to have somebody come up and do that, it's like, makes your whole week. Right. You know, and it lets you know, because we're, we're, struggling away trying to make that hand look good in the studio mm -hmm. and we yeah. don't know we don't know where don't it's going to end you up or what no it will idea. do and then somebody you don't even know who's looking at it it's somewhere in a wall somewhere and somebody sees it and they have a little miracle in their life that you helped precipitate mm -hmm. that's magic yeah that's the magic of it we got a really special role and i totally resonate with the whole this is not a competition we're a community we're here to help each other and it's good that people have different flavors of art to inspire oh, them we wouldn't ways. want to all be the same right that would be boring yeah, yeah totally. god forbid 
but, uh, but we all like to see excellence of craftsmanship yeah and a, a spirit that tries hard to for excellence hell yeah when i see your paintings i'm like holy shit that's such a high level i gotta work harder not to beat you but to feel almost like okay with myself is like okay He's working that hard, I should work that hard. Well, that's right. Or when I go to a museum and see some really good art, or even somebody that's a great artist, I'm going to bow down and worship them and hope to God someday I can be that good. And Because that's how it was when I was a kid. It's like, wow, someday I hope I could make something as pretty as that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, now I can. Right. But then I see something even better, so it makes me want to try harder. The inspiration never dies. Yeah. And it would yeah. be sad if you did art that's so good that nothing else inspired you anymore. Like, oh, that's pretty, but not as good as mine. Life has lost all meaning. <laughs> I don't think that yeah. would happen. Well, the famous cellist Pablo Casals had a really nice quote, which was, a, he's, he's like 80 years old, and he's like, I practice every day. Well, why? You're already the best in the world. He goes, well, because I think I'm getting somewhere. Uh, <laughs> totally. It's almost like we're not in competition, but we're trying to reach some kind of like God level of expression of soul. Yeah, you want to. Well, that's because you're creative and you want to make the penultimate of creation, whatever that is. You want to make your very best, whatever. And well, God created all this. We will never beat God at the masterpiece of physical reality. No, because we we're live limited little humans, but right. God gave us the little seed inside that says, you can be like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Start making stuff. Beautiful. <laughs> Practice up. Yeah. You'll get good. If you really love what you're doing, you'll get better at it and, and it'll bring you some joy. Yeah, it's so I consider myself very lucky <laughs> that I am able to have a nice home and I have a nice partner and I'm able to make stuff that's beautiful and gives people happiness. I, mm -hmm. I couldn't ask for a better job. All right, so the cameras died in the middle of all of that talk. Was, uh, we just kept on talking and talking because it's so beautiful. But thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this uh, beautiful conversation with Mark. Uh, please follow him on Instagram and his other platforms. And if you want to help out this video, pre please press like and subscribe and comment and share and all that awesome stuff. We'll see you next time. Blessings. Blessings and thank Woo! you. Thank you, Chris, for coming by. It's been a wonderful chat. Yo. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. So these days, I am back in my hometown, beautiful Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Today, I'm going to start with uh, Katie Pag, also known as Katie Paglialunga. Life is such an overwhelming inspirational tool and it's not just full of good things, it's, it's bad things too. And that can be really overwhelming in life. Just like, oh my gosh, this really extremely good thing just happened to me and then next week, like this really extremely bad thing happened to me. So the, the duality of life I find goes into my paintings a lot. Duality, I guess, right. is a theme I explore a lot. So make sure to subscribe, like, and everything else. Big thanks and see you next week. Peace.